1: Hi, I'm Brews News Editor Matt Kierkegaard, and that's just what we're here to do, talk about beer and the brewing industry, and have a conversation with the people who make the industry what it is, and see what we can learn from them. And this week, we meet Christopher Shepard, Senior Editor of US publication, Beer Marketers Insights, which has the tagline that it's a leading source of beer industry information since 1970. I've appeared on John Hole's annual end-of-year podcast with Chris for the last few years, And as you would expect from the senior editor of a publication called Beer Marketers Insights, I've been really impressed with Chris's insights into what's happening in the US beer market. When I ran into him at the recent Craft Brewers Conference in Nashville, we had a brief conversation about the state of the industry, and I immediately regretted not capturing a bit of that conversation for this podcast. So I arranged to do it recently, and I'm pleased that I did. In this conversation, Christopher and I look at the challenges the brewing industry faces and what it means for breweries. We discuss the differences between the US and Australian markets, which is important when Australian brewers look to the US for a lead. We discuss the challenges the brewing industry will confront in the face of the growing neo-prohibition movement and the demographic shifts, and whether no Alk is the answer to the brewing industry's woes. We also look at what has happened to Bud Light over the last few months, and what that says about beer consumers, and also about beer's ability to affect social change. It's a great and very thoughtful chat, and I hope you enjoy it as much as I do. Christopher Shepard, welcome to Beer is a Conversation. Thanks so much, Matt. It's happy to be here. Nice to see you. It was nicer to see you in Nashville, uh, all, all, all too briefly. It was a lovely moment. I
0: will. I will think fondly of walking around thinking, I should just go back to my hotel room or I should just, I just go have proper dinner and then seeing, seeing your face suddenly in front of me.
1: <laughs> oh, there were a lot of Australians there. It was at the, at, at the convoy um, a, event, but uh, I I have a lot of those moments at CBC. I really should go back to my hotel room, but there are so <laughs> many good people to, 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 to see. Um, but Chris, let's talk, let, let's talk about you um, <laughs> to, to start oh, with. Oh no. This is a conversation as, as I often introduce to our listeners, who is Chris Shepard? Ah,
0: Chris Shepard is a, a writer and reporter. Uh, he, I'm not actually going to talk in the third person. Uh, I've been rec- I've been covering the uh, U.S. beer industry for uh, it'll be 13 years in like a week or two. Uh, I cover it from a pretty particular angle. I I work for a small family of trade publications. Uh, that serve the industry. So it's all uh, about the industry for the industry. Uh, and I got into it because of my dad. Uh, I actually uh, was trained as um, as a theater director and performer and a dancer uh, and a creative writer um, but was doing that starving artist thing uh, in Brooklyn after college uh, serving coffee, tutoring test prep. Uh, and we needed a writer, uh, and as the, as the legend has it, uh, over dinner one night, my father said to my mother, you know, we're going to need to hire somebody. Uh, and my mother said, you should ask Christopher. And 13 years later, here I am.
1: Um, (laughs) Well, my my daughter is in the creative industries, uh, working in film editing, um, at the start of covid she needed, you know, her coffee job uh, shut down, her cinema job shut down, so ended up working for me for three years. But she has moved on, so <laughs> so it shows some staying power. And we we are allowed to mention Beer Marketer's Insights, which is the yeah. publication that you are now the senior editor um of. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So tell us a little bit about uh, Beer Marketer's Insights and what makes yeah. it different in the uh, beer journalism landscape in the US.
0: Yeah, we we. Call ourselves the leading source of beer industry information since 1970. We, we've just been doing it for a long time. <laughs> we've been writing about the beer industry for over 50 years. My, my boss's dad, Jerry Steinman founded the company. Um, Benj runs the company. His two sons work here. My dad worked here for 43 years alongside Benj. And, um, and so, you know, I've, it's, it's not my family company, but it is a family company. And we have, Been known, you know, one of the, one of our real sort of differentiators is our data coverage. We do a huge amount of data collection, uh, and data analysis, uh, whether that is about total industry uh, volume. Uh, most, most of the stuff we do is tracking volume. Um, but we report on the data that is sort of out there more widespread, like the, the retail data, the off-premise, the sort of convenience store, grocery store sales data, uh, that you see quoted a lot more often. Um, but we do proprietary estimates of total industry volume, brand volume, major suppliers. It's one of the things that we've done in, in craft for a long time. I, I started covering the craft industry here in 2010. And so, we do um we, we do a lot of working on getting to as close as we can uh, for estimates on uh how big craft is but you know individual brewers um that are sort of a 100,000 barrels or larger uh and you know we just track the news um whether that's deals uh and mergers and acquisitions um we do a lot of legal and policy coverage. That's a huge piece of the industry here. Something my dad did for a long time and something that I sort of lead the charge on these days for us is, is covering alcohol policy uh, and the various legal issues um, that different industry members get into or when uh, certain industry members sort of go after the state or the, the government entities uh, that are regulating it. So. We cover the game. It, it
1: sounds like a far more advanced version of what we do here. And, and it, it, it fascinates me to hear you talk about the, the data because one of the great shames in Australia is the lack of mm. good data um, uh, around beer. And it's partly because the scan data um, at, uh, at. We have two major retailers in Australia and mm-hmm. one of them keeps its data completely to itself and it's <laughs> you know, got more than half the beer retail sales because it's incredibly valuable to to eat it. and it's uh, and it is one of the disadvantages of a monopoly. So not only do they have the, the largest share of the alcohol sales in packaged, they also have the data and use those insights not for the good of, of the industry, but for the good of themselves, which uh, makes it very hard to, to cover the industry um, yeah. because anecdote isn't the plural of data.
0: No nope it's something I I have become acutely aware of doing this job is the difference between sort of good data right or solid data that we can depend on and and squishy data um and it's a it's definitely a big pet peeve of mine when I see uh, stories that I are, are based on squishy data but don't necessarily acknowledge how squishy that data
1: really is. <laughs> And it's always by people that it comes from people who are selling something that that data supports. And Well, often, often yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, I'm seeing it so much at the moment with all of the, uh, as I've said quite a bit, I've never seen more attention given to any segment of the drinks industry than I've seen to... Uh, zero alk um, beer. There's just so many, and, and the media <laughs> have really picked up. They're, they're, I call yeah. it the man bites dog story because hey, you <laughs> can drink beer without the booze sort of story. Um, yeah. And particularly in Australia, um, there, there is so much data. Thirty percent of the market are now drinking, you know, low alcohol beers, whereas in Australia, you know, the, the low alcohol beer definition includes anything under three and a half percent, and 25% of the Australian beer market is what we call our mid-strength market, which is that. So we, we've got the biggest mid-strength market in the world. So it makes it look like when it's conflated with zero-alc, it looks like we've got this huge... And zero-alc, the dial is barely moving. Um, and yet there are so many squishy data points hmm. that people are celebrating to say, hey, this is a category. Yeah. And it 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 always troubles me because i hear so many very small brewers um who don't have the resources to do anything quoting newspaper stories as the reason that they're doing something when so much newspaper stuff is pr generated by somebody else in in the industry and you're basing decisions on bad data
0: yep the um you know, it's interesting that you talk about the, the, the mid-strength market there because there is not really something comparable uh, in the U.S. And there's here you're either it's like four and a half percent ABV and up uh, and then it's just, you know, a, a desert down to 0.5. Right. Which is not now. There is very, very little going on Um you know, some states used to have special laws for sort of 3 2 beer, right? Beer that was below 3.2% um, that was available. Uh, those beers could be in grocery stores, for instance, while full strength beers could not. Um, a lot of those laws are gone. 3 2 beer is basically gone. Um, And so it's just a, it's just a desert there. And it makes me sad because that's where I want to be drinking all of the time. (laughs) Give, (laughs) give me a sub 4% beer. Please, please, please. Um, but the conflation of no and low is an interesting moment that you're bringing up there that that's actually. That so many people are being drawn to that and getting excited about it—it's that conflation of low and and no—that is. I I read a report from the WHO, speaking of the alcohol policy stuff that I have to do. Uh, that the WHO is very upset um, about this sort of no and low thing, partially because low isn't no. Um, And they're very frustrated by the, they're always frustrated by the industry, but they're very frustrated that the industry is sort of using this as like, no, this, this is going to get people to drink less. And they're like, no, it's not. They're still drinking lots. Um, That's a very, very overly simple summary of that report. But um, it's an interesting moment.
1: I I might have to read that one because it's, uh, it's something, but I, I, I just want to pick up on that when there were laws saying that 3.2 could be sold in bodegas and uh, supermarkets. Um, It's amazing how tax and legislation drive an industry and shape an industry so powerfully. And it's almost unintended, sometimes it's intended, but in, in Australia, we do have a very sweet spot for, those mid strength beers, and then the even you know, 4.4, 4.3, 4.2% full strength beers because of our punitive tax laws. Um, with a volumetric tax system, brewers can save a huge amount of money just by reducing the tax from 4.9, which was the standard full strength beer, down to 4.4. It's almost a shrinkflation in a way because mm-hmm. they can save money for making the same thing. Mm-hmm. But then also our drink driving laws um, are, are so strong, and we have roadside breath testing where you can just be driving along and pulled over without cause, just to be breath tested. And that was the other reason because it was much easier. You know, the three point five percent was very easy to track your drinking. And on John Hol's podcast and some of the other podcasts that, that I listen to in the states, you hear that the American pale ale is rarely on tap because when you're looking at an IPA versus a pale ale, the consumer is going, well, there's no price difference between the two, so I'll go for the one that I get better value, assuming that mm-hmm. we don't have that in Australia because mm-hmm. an IPA is going to be $1 or $2 a pint more than the, the, the same thing. And so that v- drastically shapes the, the, the beer landscape and, and what brewers are creating.
0: Yeah, you you see, we and this has become increasingly true here in the U.S. Um, in in the last couple of years. Uh, that for craft, this this has been true for a long time, but increasingly so, we see consumers sort of specifically looking uh, for that ABV. Um, right, it's it's the the higher the number, the better.
1: But is it a consumption thing where they want the buzz, they want you know, it, it's almost binge drinking, or is it the value proposition that the higher ABV looks at um, in terms of you know just getting more bang for your buck? Uh,
0: like like most most things, uh, it, it's it's both uh, right. There's they're both. You'll find both of those people out there. Um, the consumer that has come to craft more recently is that sort of younger legal drinking age consumer who is mostly interested in alcohol as intoxication. Um, and for a long time that consumer was not really interested in craft. Um, or if like they sort of came to craft a little bit later. Um, I I was very typical of the craft consumer that came into the segment around a, a decade ago or just a little bit more, right? In our mid to late twenties. Uh, uh, well-educated, uh, sort of uh, upper-middle class, had a little, had a good job, had some extra cash around. Was like, oh, this is something I can be obsessed with, um, and sort of uh, show off a little bit with the knowledge that I garner. Um, but it wasn't so much about the intoxication; it was about the experience, right? Um, and what's happening now is that we're seeing some brands. Actively think about, right, how do we attract a younger consumer, right, because a lot of our consumers have grown older, we need to figure out how to recruit the 21 to 25 year old. Uh, but that's always a little bit of a catch 22 because 21 to 25 year olds are not necessarily thinking about um, some of them are, but a lot of those consumers, the thing that attracts them is
1: alcohol is intoxication. And sweetness and easy flavor as opposed to complexity of flavor. Yeah, yeah. Um, It's, uh, you know, there's arguments to
0: be made there about um, how alcohol is viewed in our culture and uh, all sorts of complicated things there that feels way above my head in some ways. But uh, I do know that that they're there and that they're coming to craft in a way that they did not uh, previously. Uh, Looking for those big cans of... Uh, high-strength IPAs, uh, which is sort of a fascinating um, shift for the industry uh, to figure out.
1: So, I, and, and I guess you're thinking of uh, beers like Voodoo Ranger, which has been huge, um, and, and it's amazing to see New Belgium have a second act, um, which a lot of breweries have found very hard to do. Um, is your sense that Voodoo Ranger is targeting a younger consumer who is actually mm-hmm. looking for you know the buzz not the sophistication of craft beer.
0: they they won't tell you that it's a it's about the buzz um, they but they will tell you it's about the younger consumer. Um, that was sort of that that was one of the the key goals of Voodoo Ranger was like how can we create a brand that is relevant to a 21 to 25 year old? Uh, how, how do we do that um, and they came up with this character um, I think if you start sort of digging into some of the social media marketing and, but not just sort of the messages that they're sending but the messages that they're getting back right the, the way that the consumers are interacting with the brand on Instagram or so forth uh, one of the themes that comes up repeatedly is you know is, is getting drunk. <laughs> uh you you see uh you see, you see consumers telling them over and over again and so you know you see the number 9 and 9.5 which is the strength of the of the brands come up in the marketing a whole lot and then sort of being used a little bit like a badge like the badge becomes the number. Yeah. Um and so it's you know I uh, I think clearly New Belgium is attempting to walk that line, um, but again, if you sort of look at the way the consumers are responding to it and, and interacting with it, it's it's sort of clear the thing that they're getting out of it.
1: Um, Which again, in in Australia, because of legislation, um, market beer marketers, alcohol marketers can't even use people in the their advertising that look like they're under twenty five. Mm-hmm. It's the um, same here. I mean, well, it's, not it, okay. a, it's not a law; it's a self-imposed
0: restriction. But it's one of the interesting things about the brand because it's there's it's not a it's not people; it's a cartoon skeleton. Mm. <laughs> um, and you you cannot tell me uh, that 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 cartoons that animation itself is sort of off off limits. Like that's just nonsense, as far as I'm concerned. Um, and you run into free speech problems really really quickly uh, in the U.S. Uh, we we don't, take our well, First Amendment very seriously. Yes,
1: we, we, which we don't have that um, <laughs> constitutional uh, yeah. uh, right to free speech. But then at the same time, and it, it's one of the things that really I endlessly debate internally because on one hand, you know, free speech, the, the idea of free speech doesn't work so well when people are willing to blatantly lie in the name of free speech. <laughs> and that's allowed. But marketers, for example... Can't knowingly lie about their product, or you know, and and, and advertisers can't, and yet individuals can, and I, I guess the the natural form of that is politicians, you know, they, 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 which is marketing of a politician in a way, but they can, you know, behave in a way that they don't. You know anyway, that, that's a whole other thing. But um, <laughs> beer marketers um, have a very fine line to walk because we are we do also see what I would call the rise of the neo prohibitionist where, you know, um, and, and they're, they're following the same tactics um, that were used against the tobacco industry, which I would say is a vastly different industry in terms of every drink you have is causing you cancer is almost the message mm-hmm. that they're walking towards. But oh, it's then- not almost the message. That is the message. <laughs>
0: <laughs> <laughs> That's not, that, that is very much one drop of alcohol will give you cancer and, or increases your risk of cancer. And everyone should know that. Yeah.
1: Yeah. I guess all of that um, introduction aside, where do you see the, the beer industry at the moment? You know, where do you see craft? Is craft a millennial trend that's going to move through and or, you know, will it bleed um, into the Gen Zs who are coming through? Will they pick up craft beer a, 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 as a category themselves or does beer have to change to appeal to them the way that we're seeing with Voodoo Ranger?
0: Hmm. Oh, interesting set of questions there. And I do want to clarify that I was I about about the whole cancer thing. That is their message. Not mine. That is, necessarily. Their, message. That is, that is their message, not necessarily mine. Um, I do cover that space fairly regularly. Um and they're more powerful outside the US than they are here. Um but the the beer market's in a real weird place right now. I mean, the US beer uh, by volume has been stagnant i'll say for about 15 years up a little bit down a little bit uh but volume has been sort of trading up. So there hasn't been a lot of concern. It's been uh, shifting people up to higher end imports, to craft, to flavored malt beverages, uh, or malt alternatives, or alcopops, uh, depending on where you are, um, that again, tend to be higher priced, um, trading up to higher end brands like Michelob Ultra. Um, and so losing a bit of volume, gaining the dollars, not necessarily a negotiation that certainly major brewers had a problem with. And since it opened the door to a lot of craft brewers, you know, small brewers were obviously here for that as well. Um, uh, Pandemic, wild, Uh, major shift, but not actually a bad thing. Uh, Volume in the, in the U S actually increased in both 2020 and 2021. Um, But as we suspected at the time, and as we learned in 22, um, a lot of that was sort of fake, (laughs) A lot of that was volume that went out into the market, but wasn't necessarily consumed. Um, there were a lot of kegs that were destroyed in 2020. There was a lot of hard seltzer that was destroyed and went out of code in wholesaler warehouses in 2021. Um, and so 2022 is the worst year for U.S. beer volume that we've ever tracked at Beer Marketers. And like I said, we've been doing it for over 50 years. We've never seen a decline Um of, of negative three and a half percent, which is what we estimated for, for the year. Uh, and that's that's a lot, a lot of barrels of beer. <laughs> um, and so, but again, that was sort of giving back some of that sort of fake volume that built up in, in 20 and 21. And so there was, it was funny, there was this sense early in the year that it's like, okay, after this reset, like, can beer start building from here? Uh, and I think now that we're midway through the year, there's not a lot of positivity on that. <laughs> um, there's a, there's even bigger questions, I think. And when it comes to craft, you know craft had two down, you know it declined in, in 20 for obvious reasons, uh, came back a bit in 21, got some recovery in 21, but we estimated total craft volume down last year in the US. Um, we differed a little bit from the Brewers Association in that respect, but we we were measuring slightly different things and count slightly different things. Um, so we estimate craft volume was down last year, um, and there wasn't a lot of signal that, that it was going to come back. Um, there was, you know, plenty of concern that you know Gen Z really wasn't going to craft, um, other than these sort of few select brands um, that were from just a handful of companies sort of playing in a really particular space. Um, But that's weirdly shifted too. craft has started to grow again in the off premise in the last month or two. Um, There's probably one big contributor to that, (laughs) which is that there's a lot of volume. There's a lot of volume to go around these days uh, when, when, when the largest brand in the country is declining by 25 to 30% in the off premise, uh, that's a, that's a lot of sales that a lot of other companies can pick up. Um, there is, it, it seems probable that some of that is going to craft. Um, but in, in terms of sort of the bigger picture and, you know, will Gen Z come on? Will, will, you know, the millennial interest in craft be passed on is, is a real open question to me. Uh, and I think it has to do with there are fundamentals of you know what we know about gen Zs right they're really values driven they do everything digitally their whole life is online um right but they they are int- it's sort of I, I think of them as sort of like even more extreme on some of the things that millennials brought to the world um, interest in variety it's not it's not just variety seeking anymore I think of it as like a a requirement uh, for personalization, right? They're they're not looking for just something different. They're looking for something that is just for them, because um, because they're they're used to experiences being sort of catered to them and filtered for them, which is way. hard
1: with an FMCG product. <laughs> okay, yeah,
0: absolutely. You know, you know. That being said, I can make an argument that parts of that fits fit pretty squarely into what a small brewery can do. Um, there was, I think it was, I think it was the SIBA report, the, the, the UK, the society of, um, independent brewers in, in, in the UK, their 2022 report, they always do, they grab some trends from Mintel, uh, sort of big consumer trends. Um, and again, this notion of personalization and values driven, looking for companies that share their values with them. And, um, there was another, uh, a consultant here who was talking about how Gen Z isn't really responding to local or local ingredients. Um right, they're interested in sustainability, but they're not um they're not sort of connecting that with with sort of craft cues and and local beer cues. And it's just like, well, someone just needs to connect the dots because um if if you care about you know, sustainability and supply chain and thinking about local markets and how far goods travel and like where you're expecting things to come from makes a whole lot of sense. Um, you know, craft, craft breweries that are investing heavily in more sustainable practices that are thinking really carefully about their supply chain and where their ingredients come from and buying local uh, malt and hops where possible. That's a very small piece of the industry right now, but, you know, connects. You, it seems to me you could connect those dots for a younger consumer who cares about those things.
1: Well that, that's and, and that's where you know I, I do worry that sometimes the values that are identified are performative because yep is, um, is that real? It, it, is it real? And you know <laughs> like I look at the number of Norwegian backpacks that I see young people in Australia um, walking around and going, oh these are the most sustainable backpack I'm going but is it really? (laughs) (laughs) If if it's being sent sent around the world, is it really? Um, And it's kind of like, I want the most sustainable thing, but I don't want to ask any questions, which is to to me a little bit like going back 30 years when European premium beers were imported into Australia and America. And then they suddenly started being made locally and people didn't want to dig too deeply because it was a badge. It was less about what it re- what it was and what it represented. It was I want to have the badge to show who I am, um, and not think too deeply about that.
0: Yep the I, it is a very open question to me. I mean, the thing that I always say about the whole values thing is like people only care about so many things, right? Yes. Like there might be one, maybe two things that they, like, really care care about or latch onto in in an actual serious way. But a lot of the other things are pretty surface, right? And they're probably not going to spend a whole lot of time investigating everything. Mm. Um, I think, you know, it's reasonable to expect, given the amount of information that is out there, that Gen Z might do that more than other generations. But again, I can't... They're not... You know, you're not going to find... Uh, that younger consumer who is doing that kind of research about every single little thing, I would suspect. Um, but I, I also, you know, the, the, infor- can, can you trust the information that's out there? Right. Like, you know, there's, there is, there's so much and inf- as they do that investigation, it has, a,
1: uh, what is that?
0: <laughs> what is that info? Where is that data coming from? Right. Where is uh, and- that facts coming from?
1: The the thing that really stuck out for me there was when you said people care and they can only care about so many things. And I wonder these days in light of all of the options that younger consumers particularly, but all consumers overall have in terms of what you drink, you know, once upon a time, if you were a young man, beer was the socially acceptable thing to drink. These days, that's broken down. Um, there isn't the same compulsion that that you drink beer. You can drink seltzer. You can drink RTDs. You can drink anything. How much do people care about beer to warrant that next level care about where my beer comes from? Um,
0: oh yeah, oh yeah. It's I I and I think for the vast majority of people, it's it's not very much. Um, you know, beer. It, it, is something that's there um you know although the last few months here notwithstanding it's sort of there it doesn't necessarily seem like a lot of a lot of people are super engaged and really thinking very much about exactly where it comes from or or what it stands for um although you know that notion of of be- beer as a
1: men's drink uh, is still quite strong uh, in in America, at least. We-, we frame things through, you know, certainly my friends, and I'm 53, so my friends grew up drinking beer and, you know, they will dabble in wine and they, they won't drink seltzers. They- they're not RTD people. They might have a scotch or something like that as an after dinner thing, but they are Products of the time when young men mm-hmm. drank beer, and they've mm-hmm. carried that through. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, if you don't mind me asking, so how old are you? You're late I'm 30s. my late thirties. I'm thirty-seven, late thirties. Yeah. So almost a half generation later, and you know, I would imagine beer was still, but you're on the tapering end of um, beer being deeply embedded in 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 your peers, or am I completely wrong about that?
0: Uh, I. I drank a little bit of beer in college, but not so much. I didn't okay. really drink beer in a big way until I started doing this job. Um, it was learning more about craft, frankly, that, that got me to drink beer. And now I drink almost exclusively beer. It is, okay. it is the vast majority of my consumption. And I think that that is, again is sort of typical of a craft consumer of my gen, of the millennial generation, right? Where like we were probably drinking spirits in college when, when I was in college, that was what people drank uh and sweet spirits like the, the the sweeter ones not the uh usually usually sweeter um but again it was about it was right college drinking is largely about intoxication um yep. because it's forbidden it's forbidden right you're not supposed mm-hmm. to be doing it uh it's illegal under 21 in the u.s and so when people when you go off to college it's still seen as that sort of rite of passage um it is slightly less prevalent today than it was then but you know, teen drinking is way down, but college drinking is not so much. Um, it's still sort of seen as you go away to college and you can start to drink even though you're not supposed to. Um, so that drinking becomes about the intoxication. And so I moved on in my late 20s as I didn't care so much about that uh, and and found craft and was like, oh, this is a whole different experience. Um, and I think there are a lot of other folks of my generation that sort of went through that progression. Um it is still completely valid to think that, you know, because the oldest members of Gen Z are, you know, still in their mid twenties for the most part. Um, so could they go through a, a similar maturation? Maybe. Um, but, uh, it's, and, and I should say specifically of millennial men went through that, right. The, uh, millennial women did not so much craft, struggled to reach women and still does. Um, and i think part of that is that hangover a, a generations old hangover of this notion that that men drink beer that that beer is a men's drink and and that is something that the industry went with right the industry supported the industry sort of drove the industry held on to for a long long time in terms of how it chose to market and who it chose to market to for decades 20 and 30 20 to 30 year old men were the core consumer and the only consumer that mattered. Um, and we're still reaping the rewards of that. Uh, beer is as an industry is still sort of, I say rewards of that, but like is, is at this point and frankly over the last you know decade or two been sort of seeing the consequences of that I, I, is, is another way to
1: put it. One of the things we talked about in Nashville, um, which you know, is equal parts fascinating, but equal parts horrible, um, is the Dylan Mulvaney um, situation with Bud Light. And, mm-hmm. uh, you know, because we're seeing so much of that, um, you know, through the lens of this, this one case study. And, uh, you know, I would describe it, you know, it's been mischaracterized as a campaign by Bud. Um, it, it sounds like it was a one-off um we want to broaden our appeal. Um, how can we do that? They sent a, a carton of personalised beer to a trans social influ- influencer. You know, presumably, I thought they thought it would sort of stay within those circles. Right. But of course, it's a highly politicised issue these days. Everything is reactive. It blew up, and Bud has Bud has suffered but then a whole community seems to have suffered as well from the blowback because it it as as always happens it registers with the people that are involved
0: yeah it's been a wild story to try to report on uh, and when i saw you in nashville you know close to 2 months ago it was sort of still in the throes of it and i struggled with it it was very it for raw if you
1: don't mind time. me saying like it, it was oh, quite, yeah. a very
0: yeah yeah i was i was Uh, I was still hurting, frankly. Um, And, and that's been, that's been the piece of it that like, you know, I'm not used to in my job. Um, You know, there's always a human element to, to, you know, any of the stories to any merger and acquisition to, you know, any growth story, right. There's a human element to it. But in, in this story um, there was human pain in a way that was sort of different um, you know, we saw lots of people who work in the industry here, you know, being attacked, being threatened, um, being treated really poorly out in the market while they tried to do their jobs. Whether those were servers, um, lots of wholesaler employees, um, that uh, that treatment is ongoing. By the way, right? Like that treatment hasn't stopped. There are still we reported on a letter from from wholesalers that were, that was sent to, um, or it was a I guess it was a, a survey, an anonymous survey of wholesalers. Um, that was conducted by a, a a wall street analyst um where you know these leaders of this whole were saying like this is you know the people you know my workers being given the finger being spit at um being cursed at while they're out delivering beer is still happening um and it's been it, it's been a bit of a, of a um it's it's been a major challenge to figure out how to report on that, um, and to try to frame that for people, uh, while walking some of the lines that that we at, at beer marketers have to walk uh, for the audience for our our audience. As as you said, it's a it's a highly politicized issue, and how you know where we land in that debate personally. Is not really what we, you know, are intending to to put out for our readers. Like that's generally that's not what our readers are turning to us for. That's not the information that they're turning to us for. And so figuring out how to write about that in a in a way that did not, um, you know, in a way acknowledge how politicized it is, um, was challenging and and. Frankly, for me, that was part of where the pain came from, because um, i I can't help but see that. Um, but I also know that it's like that's not what um, these folks are looking to me for. Thankfully, I did not have to do a lot of the writing. Uh, at least in April, I've I've done some more of it since. Uh, it's It's nice about having a staff of people. But um, uh, yeah, it's been it's it's been a wild ride.
1: But I guess when you hear that about people who are just selling the beer or, you know, wholesaling the beer, that's happening to them. It really brings home the impact on the communities that this storm is swirling around and Mm -hmm. and, and, and what the impact must be on them. Um,
0: Yep. Something that I have wondered about a lot is, and and I'm not certain um, that a lot of folks in the industry are, have connected, but I, people in the industry who are not used to this kind of treatment are getting a little bit of a taste. It seems to me of, of what it's like to be a, a transgender person in the world, <laughs> just sort of going about trying to live their life. Um, and I think, you know, of all the critiques, I mean, the, the endless debates in the office about what could have worked, Wow, well, could this have been done, what was, where is the fault? How do we sort of help folks figure out where that fault is? Um, the thing that I, I keep coming back to is, you know, I uh, knew in January and February and March uh, I was watching how a community that I'm very close to was being attacked uh, in the press and with legislation uh, and knew that the transgender community was sort of under fire in the U.S. and that it was a, a really, really hot issue. Um, and I think anyone who is sort of close to that community, has friends in that community, uh, was recognizing that, was feeling that. Um, and it it is surprising to me that there wasn't um a recognition that like hmm this issue is really hot is this where we should go so it's like why i you know i can't fault the folks at ab for recognizing the fact that uh the lgbtq community is huge and growing and has lots of money uh, has under indexed in beer and is an audience worth speaking to. Uh, the fact that I just looked at these numbers today, uh, it is 7% of the US adult population that I self identifies as LGBT, uh, but it is 20% of Gen Z, uh, that high schools, st- that 20, fully 25% of high school students in the country now identify as not heterosexual or not straight. Um, So I fully recognize that a brand that's sort of thinking about how do I reach young people would think to go to this community and be like, how do I work with somebody who is influential in this community and figure out how to get them to sort of, or just pay them to recognize my brand. Um, But it doesn't seem like there was uh, also a recognition of how extra special hot that issue is now uh and and clearly clearly nobody saw what was going to happen um, beforehand because uh, no, nobody wanted what happened to happen
1: there is a very deeply personal issue that we'll come to, but then there's also like a a, a marketing issue i don't want to, to yeah. be, like I, I don't want to separate by intellectualizing it. But there was a very interesting discussion I saw on a podcast called Pivot where Mm -hmm. um, Professor Scott Galloway and uh, Kara Swisher were were discussing it. And it just shows how mainstream that this has become, that it's a a news podcast. Um, But Scott Galloway was essentially, there was a bit of a discussion about the Colin Kaepernick um, Mm podcast Uh, comparison where he took a knee, um, you know, to protest, uh, you know, all, all Black Lives Matter. Um, and there was a bit of a blowback about that. And it certainly hit the mainstream. But it seemed to die um, down fairly quickly. And the, the point that he made was that, you know, when Nike jumped on to support him, it was, uh, and the, the figures were, you know, they, they real, it was a purely an economic decision that um, Nike, most Nikes were bought by people under 30s who are natives in this issue and are very supportive of the issue and the people that were protesting basically had to go and buy a pair of Nikes to burn them yeah. um, because it wasn't there. And that's not the case with beer um, no. because of the things that we talked about. When beer embraces these communities and beer embraces these issues, They're actually antagonizing some very rusted on drinkers and values that, you know, to to put it very bluntly, I've also heard it, some of these attitudes are going to progress funeral by funeral. You know, it's almost people that hold, uh, they're they're not my words, it, 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 it is. You know, there are some of these issues are so deeply ingrained in generationally that, People's minds aren't going to be changed. They're going to pass on before the issue progresses. And beer seems to have been caught up in that generational thing to some extent.
0: Hmm. I don't disagree. I uh, I think it is a shame to me that Im- embracing uh, because one one of the things about the misconceptions about the story, you know, the the information that continues to be passed on, um, that you mentioned when when you sort of introduced the the topic, right? This this notion that it's a campaign. It turns out it might not have been entirely a one off. There were at least two Instagram posts. Uh, okay. That Dylan posted, right, which is sort of lesser talked about, uh, that there was an earlier one in February. So may- maybe there was going to be an ongoing partnership. Um, but at the very least, in the sort of grand scheme of Bud Light marketing, this is pretty tiny. Um, you know, there's the, the the world of Bud Light marketing and the kind of audiences that they seek to attract and the communities that they send funds to and, and sort of support. Um, I, I would say that this is Probably proportional to to the transgender communities, uh, 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 sort of the transgender the size of the transgender population within the U.S. Right, like, like the size the scale of this promotion was probably on par with that. Um, uh, so it's a shame to me that you know trying to talk to a new audience is um so upsetting. Uh, that that embracing one community alongside lots of other communities can be so it is somehow antagonizing um and i and I, I think you're right to some extent about how those mindsets shift um well and and now that i'm thinking about it more and sort of talking it out maybe i disagree um okay. because i watched i <laughs> I watched my country fundamentally change how they felt about gay marriage not just in my lifetime but in my adulthood and you know uh you know to bring a little bit of the personal story right in in the time between um I got engaged to my now husband and the time that I married him same sex marriage went from not legal to legal in New York State. And within within five years, I kind of want to say it was three years. Uh, well, no, no. Within five years after we got married, it was legal nationally. And the, the country really sort of changed how it felt. It just sort of got over the fact. Now, part of that was aging. But I also watched how personal interactions changed people's minds. Right? How people recognize that they, turns out they knew somebody who was gay and wanted to get married. They talked to somebody. They had a friend. They had a neighbor. They had a, a work colleague's child. And how recognize, it, it seemed to me that those close connections, right? Those, that's, it, you sort of call it word of mouth, if you will, um, actually changed people's minds. Uh, and, and, and changed a lot of people's lives, uh, mine including. And so, I, I guess I have a little bit more hope that we, that that can happen again. Um, but the challenge here is that the, the trans community is really small, um, and is comparatively small. Uh, and so, there are lots and lots of people in the country who just don't know what their experience is right who don't understand the transgender experience and are letting other pieces of uh, you know other sources fill in those information gaps um and i think that uh you know where the politicization comes in is that there's there are forces that are sort of thinking about how how to keep this issue hot and and how to get how to keep people engaged and and afraid um and so it's it's a wild thing that, that sort of touched my work life in a way like i'm in some ways i'm used to that touching my personal life um but not used to that sort of becoming a part of my work life uh
1: but it definitely is it, it well it's funny you mention that because one of the things attracted me about writing about the brewing industry is you can shrink the world down to a glass of beer and all of the issues that are playing out in the broader community are reflected in you know the industry and beer and you know the the industry is grappling with modernizing and you know uh environment and you know all, all of the things that we're seeing and we can talk about it so it and because it shrinks it down, you can sort of see it sometimes more clearly than you can in, in, in the big issues that we can't get our heads around. Um, what do you think then about, one of the things that I've looked at is, you know, on one hand, you could say that this was a, you know, I won't say cynical, but a marketing exercise for a big company looking at how can we make our product more reflective. And the only reason I would say that it was potentially cynical is how quickly they withdrew um, from it um, and not owned, without taking ownership of the trouble that you know, the, the, the damage that they had potentially created to a community. Um, and you know, is, is that a lesson that businesses... With, with all of the conversation that we have around broadening beer space and appealing to new audiences um, businesses need to think very carefully about how they do that in a way that, you know, the, 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 the medical, first do no damage, you know, a doctor's first job is, you know, first do no harm and then see what you can achieve. It, it, is that something that marketers need to, to be aware of?
0: Of, of course. I, and I, you know, uh, this story is something we've talked about in the office a ton and that my boss has said it sort of a thousand times at this point is like, you know, this, this story is going to be studied in marketing schools for would be marketers for generations, probably For, for a long, long time. This case study is going to be sort of held up. Um, and, and as we move further and further away from it, it will be viewed in, in different ways, of course, as always. Um, but if you know if i'm a marketer the, the thing that i'm thinking about from this is really knowing what what i'm trying to say <laughs> you know and in, and in this way it's a little bit easier for for small companies right for marketers who are marketing things that are pretty small right when you know when you're when you're a bud light and you're trying to talk to the whole world um you know having private conversations with little individual subsets of of the whole world can be really challenging in the in the digital world we live in today um but when you're working on a smaller brand it can be a lot easier to connect exactly what you're there to do exactly what that message is to to be to root that in your product and your values as a company and, you know, and, and to go there, right. To go to different places. Um, Cause you upset some other people over there. It, it might not matter. Um, But it's also about really, really knowing when you speak, when you sort of stand up and, and say something really know who is already behind you. Um And I think, you know, that's one of the complaints we've seen a lot of is, is, that this story is a, um, it it's exacerbated uh, a divide that already existed between folks who were making the marketing decisions and folks who were selling and then drinking the beer, out in other parts of the country. Um, that's a, one of the complaints that AB's wholesalers has, have bought for a, brought to the company for a long time, um, and that they're screaming about now. Right, you're making decisions in New York that make no sense to me to my market to my consumers um and so i think it's not just about knowing what the message is it's about knowing really who's there right who's standing behind you and who's standing in front of you who are you trying to talk to and and who else is listening um and it it to me it just it sort of argues for smallness on the consumer side too because um, the I get frustrated by the fact that it's like, are you joking me? Bud Light's been at every Pride event I've ever been to. Every gay bar I've ever walked into has had a rainbow Bud Light tap handle. They've supported my community for decades. Um, what are you What are you talking about? You're mad that they're sponsoring Pride? Like, what? You, where Where have you been? Um. And so, as I think, the flip side of that is on the consumer, right? which again sort of argues for smallness, right? Like how how can I know as a consumer, how can I be sure that the thing that I, you know, this brand that I think of as very important to me, how can I be sure that they do stand for all the things that I stand for? Um, you know, and then we get back into the trouble we talked about <laughs> however many minutes ago. is sort of like how many consumers are really thinking about it that way? Um, but I think, you know, I, I, I see that same story. I see that same sort of, you know, if I'm going to care this much about a brand, like I should know all the things that they purport to stand for and support. Um, and if I am a brand and I'm going to try to talk to all of these people, I should know, first of all, really, really know who's already with me and what they're feeling about these things. Um, and then what the opportunity is to talk to somebody else.
1: Christopher, there's a whole lot that I would have loved to have covered, but I actually think that it would actually diminish that to to move on to anything else. So I'll book you to come back on, and we'll talk about some other things later. Um, but yeah, there, were, there was a lot to think on um, from that. So I, I might actually just sort of leave the uh, this conversation there.
0: Well, thank you. It's I, you know, I'm happy to come back anytime. It's it's always great
1: talking to you. Great talking to you. Thank you for your time and for this conversation, Chris. Yeah. Cheers. Thank you. And that was Christopher Shepard. If you work in the brewing industry and are listening to this, you're not alone. Our listener feedback is that Radio Brews News is where the brewing industry and decision makers turn for their insight and analysis. And so it's the perfect audience to reach with your message as well. Now, more than ever, you should be investing your marketing spend in media that gets results and is heard. Just ask businesses such as Rallings and Bluestone Yeast about the reach and impact that our podcasting advertising has. If you want to find out more, shoot through an email to sam at brewsnews.com.au to find out how you can advertise. We'll be back this Friday with Brews News Week with all of the insight and analysis about the last seven days of brewing industry news. Thanks for listening.